0: Hello my friends, how you doing? This is Coffee Chug. Guys, here I am with episode 80. It's hard to believe that this season has been going so wonderful. So many great conversations that I hope that you are really, really, really enjoying these episodes. And if you are, I would love it if you would just take a screenshot, share it, let people know the episodes that you love. In this episode, I get to speak with someone who has not only challenged my thinking time and time and time again in my education career, but I'm now lucky enough to be able to call him a friend and not just a friend, but also a mentor, and I'm speaking of nobody else but um, the amazing Scott McCloud, who has a new book out, his website, Dangerous Be Irrelevant, which many of you have probably come across and read his stuff at some point, whether you're in Iowa or Colorado or anywhere around the world. Um, he is also known for a video series that has been viewed millions and millions of times called the Did You Know series, looking at the shift in education, um, that he had put together a few years back. Guys, this is a conversation I'm so excited to bring to you because I get get a chance to speak with him over the summer. We got a chance to catch a baseball game. He was back in Iowa. And every time I speak with him, I'm like, gosh, these are the ideas that everybody needs to hear. So... Super excited and and very honored and appreciative of him carving out some time to speak with me to get these conversations out to the masses for you all to enjoy. So enjoy this episode with Scott McCloud as we talk about some really, really awesome topics and he's one of the amazing people who don't just talk in theory, but he gives practical tips. Enjoy the show and if you like it, let all your friends and family know. <laughs>
1: Chaos. Woke up at six o'clock in the morning, chilling with coffee mugs, me and coffee chugs, talking education all across the nation, pushing boundaries, thinking innovation.
0: Aaron Mauer, outside the box thinker, here to teach each and every teacher how to tinker. Living on the edge of chaos, born insane. Listening to coffee chugs like captain for the brain. One of the top teachers in Iowa, word is born. Here to show the world that there's more here than corn. Chaos. Hello everyone, how you doing? This is Coffee Chug and I am here with uh, not only a guest, someone who I consider both a mentor and friend and I'm so excited to have him on the show. Um, He is someone that has pushed my thinking both through conversation as well as uh, the ideas that he shares on his blogs and his books and everywhere else and so um, this is a a conversation that I'm I'm super delighted to bring to all the listeners who have uh, graciously uh, tuned in each week to the podcast and so I just want to dive right in and and Scott, why don't you go ahead and just kind of introduce who you are. I know you do many things, but maybe kind of currently uh, what you do.
1: Absolutely. I'm an associate professor of educational leadership at the University of Colorado Denver. That means I prepare principals and superintendents. So for example, I'm in charge of two principal licensure cohorts right now here in Colorado. So that's fun. I'm also the founding director of a a university center called Castle, C-A-S-T-L-E. CASEL is the only uh, university center really focused on future-ready leadership. What does it mean for um, school administrators to create future-ready learning environments, graduate future-ready students, and so on? Awesome,
0: and then there, there's so much that I want to dive into there, but as, as you were talking about how you're prepping principles and leadership, I, I just want to kind of cut right to the chase. I know a lot of conversations that I have with educators when I'm working with them in terms of learning space and STEM or maker, just how do we create inquiry and in, in good learning? So many times, I don't think it's malicious or the necessarily always the intent, but it feels like there's this rub, right, where I, I could do this if – My leadership would just see what I'm trying to do. And I know that it's not always us versus them, but I think it kind of develops. And so I guess my question I want to throw to you right away is, as as you're working with with principals in leadership, maybe what are some of those myths or misconceptions that maybe happen between admin and educators? And and what's some of the work that you're doing to kind of maybe break some of those barriers down? Because we all know there's barriers in, in all aspects of life and work. And so there's always a little bit of truth to everything, just like you know, admin probably have some concerns about educators as well. And so it's, it's always this, this happy medium. But um, what's can you talk you a little bit about that work in terms of what you're doing and what you're seeing from that lens? Because I think it's a, a voice and a perspective that not all educators just have enough time in their day to understand <laughs> the, quote, unquote, the, the, the other side, so to speak, for a lack of a better terms there.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. So, Aaron, you know I like to make PowerPoint slides to try to get people thinking. So one of my – Uh, most famous slides ever is the quote of an administrator with the thumbs down. And it says, if the leaders don't get it, it's not going to happen. And so the bottom line is that if we want systems to change, we have to um, resource and help and support the people who are in charge of those systems, right? So you can invest – uh, all the money you want in good, dedicated, hardworking, innovative teaching staff, for example, but they just don't have the power and the resources and the control levers within the system to make larger systemic change happen, right? Which is why we see a large number of innovative teachers who are doing great things in their classroom, but those are isolated pockets of innovation, right? And then many of them, as you note, are incredibly frustrated with sort of the leadership structures in the systems that they're embedded in. Uh, because they're not seeing those sort of concurrent moves like they're trying to make happen in their classroom. I think one thing to recognize, and I think you mentioned this, is that um, most educational leaders are not malicious, right? They're not trying to keep kids down. They're not trying to squash teachers' innovation. They may also feel that their hands are tied by higher levels of the system. Um, So district and central office, school boards, policymakers at the state and federal level and all those mandates and so on, right? So I think that's one of the challenges to recognize that we're probably in this boat together. It's not a a rub against each other, but we also have to recognize that we are in charge of the systems. So if we don't have a vision for robust learning, if we don't have the ability to create support structures for staff that allow them to accomplish the things we ask of them, if we don't have the ability to create meaningful professional learning and growth opportunities, if we don't have Um, the ability or inclination to transform curriculum and day-to-day learning activities, right? Like those are all the things that we're in charge of as leaders. So we have to own that. And I think one of the challenges right now is that many school leaders aren't ready to own that yet in terms of shifting towards whatever new paradigms we need for learning and teaching in a global innovation society. Part of that problem is because, you know, 99.9% of them didn't come through a university program that even talked about innovation that talked about future readiness. So they don't really have strong conceptions from their preparation programs about what that should look like, what they should do and so on and their own professional learning and growth opportunities may be lacking as well. Right? So they didn't get prepared to lead different kinds of schools. They're not getting current investments in themselves on how to lead different kinds of schools. And so they too, um, need some capacity building and structures. And that's kind of the work that Castle and I try to do.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's so important. And I know when when, when you were still in Iowa, um, you had the the League of Innovative Schools. And I remember one of my biggest takeaways from that, I got to um, attend that on behalf of our superintendent. And for me, it was just the opportunity to have that communication, right? Like I was able to sit. I mean, I wasn't a administrator. I was an instructional coach at that role. But sitting with superintendents and principals and other People in the education system really just coming together and having a really thoughtful, purposeful conversation where all of a sudden we walked out going, you know what, we are all in this together. We are on the same page. Um, and so, how do we keep those community? That's what I think when we come back to the schools, you know, how do we bring those conversations to light so the paras and the secretaries and the educators and admin are having a, a, a moment there? at the table in their own place, working on it to try to make that stuff happen. I think is, um, you know, that's one of my big things I always remember from that, that meeting. And so I think that communication piece is really essential to do a lot of that work that you're talking about and, and, the, and, and the work that you're trying to achieve.
1: Right. And I think, you know, one of the most important things we can do is bring people innovative people together to sort of figure out how do we keep pushing the envelope, but then how do we also bring other people along? So, um, You know, there's sort of two models of change. One is the push model where we go to people and we're like, hey, the world is changing. Go, go, go. You got to do this. You got to do that. Come on, come on. Let's go. You know, right? So but the other model is a pull model. It's a model where we put powerful visions of learning and teaching and schooling in front of teachers, in front of principals, in front of school board members and so on. Right. And we say, look what it could be instead. So so you're a third grade teacher. Right. Go look at this third grade teacher's classroom over here and look at what she's doing. Do you want some of that for your kids? Right. Right. And then let that pull you towards that different vision of learning and teaching. Let's take you to some different kinds of schools where kids are really empowered and doing some really amazing work. um, And then say, look, compare this to what your kids are doing, right? Do you want more of this for your kids? And then let that vision pull you towards it. So I think when we get people together, either – You know, regionally or statewide or globally or online in these, you know, online communities of practice or, you know, even within the school is that one of our um, goals should be to sort of figure out how do we structure those opportunities when we come together. Um, to drive new visions of learning and teaching as opposed to simply hey we have our staff meeting twice a month and we're just going to go over nuts and bolts logistics and the day-to-day stuff we're running the school right like we're missing opportunities there to talk about what do we want ourselves to be instead and how do we learn from others in ways that will pull us toward those visions
0: yeah yeah and so I know um it was awesome I got to to meet we actually got, got to connect in person over a, a baseball game when you were back in doing your road trip and then you were stopping in Iowa and we had some amazing conversations uh, watching some baseball and, and fireworks and everything else. And <laughs> at that time, you're, you, you you now have a book out that's published. At that time, it was just getting ready to go live. And so um, the reason I bring that in is um, because I think people listening in are not in their head going, yes, we agree. But like, how do we do that? Like how... I'm an educator. How do I start these conversations, or how do I start to think through that? Is is your newest book a a, a tool that could be used to start some of those conversations, or at least nothing else, start the reflective process within your own brain? So I didn't know if you want to speak to that a little bit. Um, I'm personally plugging your book. I know you didn't ask to, so I want to put that little caveat in there. But but as we're talking through, I'm like, I remember what you're all the things that you were working through with with you and Julie, and so. could those be some frameworks, because I think a lot of people know this, but they don 't know how to do this you know and so um i don 't know if, if if there's a good segue there with that work that you 're doing to help people because I know that that's really what something that, that you 're really passionate about
1: yeah, absolutely, and so thanks aaron i 'll always take an opportunity to talk about <laughs> my books. Uh-huh. So, you know, Solution three asked us to write uh, two books. So the first book was sort of a bigger picture. Why do schools need to change? What's happening in society around us that that are driving these changes, et cetera? That book is called Different Schools for a Different World. It's a short read. It's 60-something pages. And it really sort of like just gets to the point of, you know, we need school to be different. But the counterpart book, the second one that just came out, is called Harnessing Technology for Deeper Learning. Um, And the idea here was then how do you take those big ideas and translate them into day-to-day classroom instructional practice, as you said. Because, you know, we have a lot of school systems um, that have these sort of 21st century learning rhetorics and narratives and new frameworks and whatever, right, visions of learning. But they're really struggling to translate them into the day-to-day work that we do with kids in classrooms. So the second book is meant to be intensely practical. So Harnessing Technology for Deeper Learning really helps – Um, Anybody who cares about instructional design or redesign, um, think about four key dimensions. So how do we move lessons and units and instructional activities from lower level recall to deeper thinking? How do we move lessons and units towards greater student agency so that students are driving their own work more often and that allows us to individualize and personalize learning more? Um, how do we create opportunities for students to do more authentic work so they quit uh, connected to the real world so they stop asking us why do they need to know this why should they care and then the final uh, dimension is around the shift from analog to digital Um, partly because um, you know these new digital online spaces aren't going anywhere and we have to prepare kids for this new information landscape that we now live in but also because technology can be really powerful lever to accomplish those first three dimensions, right? So if you want uh, deeper thinking and learning to happen, if you want student agency to happen, if you want more authentic work to happen, inserting technology into those processes allows you to do things you otherwise couldn't do. So it allows you to empower kids in ways um, that otherwise wouldn't be possible in analog space. So the way the book is structured is it sort of articulates that idea at the front end. Then we have eight different chapters I'm sorry, eight different lessons and units that Julie and I actually redesigned. So you can see how we would use our discussion protocol and the questions that are in it to actually redesign lessons and make them stronger on different dimensions. And then we close with a chapter that talks about tips and strategies and techniques and recommendations for deploying the discussion protocol and these sort of instructional redesigns in your school or district. So it's meant to be a very practical um Book And if people are interested, they can go to bit.ly slash four shifts, B-I-T dot L-Y slash the number four shifts, um, and they can sort of get a glimpse of the protocol, which is openly open source and freely available and kind of see what we're trying to get at.
0: Yeah, and we'll definitely make sure we get all those links in the show notes for anyone listening in yeah. so they can definitely check that out. And so as, as you're talking about that, because I see as, as, as schools are trying to work through – you you always hear the the same kind of things we're, we're trying to improve our culture we're trying to improve the learning of students we're trying to improve our mission and vision and then um technology is always a key component in all those things and and that trying to weave that in and I know like the book is still somewhat new. Um, it's still kind of fresh off the press. But as said, you've been working with schools or having some conversation around that, do you have any kind of stories or anecdotes in which people have used maybe some of those protocols or even just some schools that have been able to really kind of just have those tough conversations? Because I don't think they The questions themselves, whether we're talking tech or we're just talking trying to get our schools where they need to be, the questions themselves aren't difficult. I think the difficult part is being open and honest and being willing to admit the gaps that we have. so I I always see that. I mean, you you can sit in any kind of session or group meeting, and you've probably sat in in way more than me, where we kind of get these cookie cutter education answers because we want to kind of like protect ourselves. And so um, have you been able to see where that kind of light bulb moment has gone off, either through the protocols in your book or just in in the general work that you do um, and all, all the different things that you do from day to day?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So the way the protocol is written, right, is that within each of the four dimensions, there's sets of questions that you can ask yourself to say whether or not you actually see that dimension occurring. So, for example, within the deeper learning dimension, right, or, or shift, there might be, you know, seven or eight questions that you can sort of ask and say, you know, if deeper learning was present in this lesson or unit, at least some of these questions we would be saying yes to, right? And I think, one of the things that we always talk about with schools as they implement the protocol is to really focus on claims versus evidence. So um, sort of this idea that if you're going to say something is present, you better be able to point to it. You ever be able to show exactly where it is and how it's occurring and whatever. Right. And I think that's where we're having some really good conversations with teachers and instructional coaches and principals and tech integration coaches um, is this idea around, Can we actually see it, right? Can you describe it? Not just, and, you know, we we wish or project or assume things are in there. We hope things are in there. But can you, let's talk about what is, right? And I think that's really a critical skill for all of us as educators to be able to critically interrogate what's happening in our classrooms Um, and not to do it in a judgmental way, right? Like we don't want to come to a teacher and be like, hey, your lesson stinks. But to say, look, trying to make this happen, then let's see what evidence we have that it actually is happening, And if you're not where you want to be yet, can we use some of these protocol questions as redesign pivots and say if we wanted the answer to this question to be this instead of that, right, how could we get there? How would we redesign to actually accomplish your goal? And so when we have those kind of conversations with teachers, really focusing on what do we see? Are we there yet? Can we shift a couple things to get there? Right, We're finding that these sort of non-threatening, non-judgmental conversations that are focused around instructional purpose and larger school and district goals are really productive.
0: Yeah, yeah, I love that. And so I think that's that's so key, and I think in order for that kind of judgment to not happen – you know, like with anything that, that foundation is is that relationship piece. You know, if we want that instructional coach to be able to provide that evidence, you know, have you built the relationship? You know, do you have that relationship with your admin? And I think a lot of that just comes back to that, that missing ingredient that at least I see and I don't have enough perspective to, to put it down in, in a research paper, but that part always seems to be missing is it comes back to that communication. Where are we as a staff, as a school, talking to one another, getting getting to understand one another so that when we do have those conversations, it doesn't look like, oh geez, here comes Sky, he's gonna come tell me that I'm bad again. You know, like how do we you know, it's it's that essence and so I think sometimes we jump that gun and start going right into these things and we wonder why it falls flat when we've missed this other thing of kind of, you know, being on the same page.
1: Right. Well I think one of the things you're describing here is that a lot of our educators and parents and families and communities still don't own the why of the change mm. right so Good point. Good point. Uh, so if we don't own the why then you coming in and asking me to do something different is going to help any right so i, I remember uh, i got a principal at a school i won't name but she asked me to come work with all her staff on the protocol because she was really excited about it and it was very clear right away that although she had an urgency of changing instruction in the school building they didn't mm. and so here's this dude that they never met Right, who's coming in and tell them how to do something that they didn't want to do, and it was just a waste of everybody's time, right? Yeah. Uh, because until they own the 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 why of the movement, right, talking about the what and how do you actually move doesn't help them a bit.
0: Right. 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 Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, and that's, I think, that's that key piece, and is just making sure you know everybody is on that kind of same page as we're moving forward in some of these changes, so it doesn't become such a a personal attack. And so I know like for you, you also get a chance to, you travel, not just stateside. I know you were just mentioning before the recording that you you spent some time over in Asia and you get get to see a lot of education models, both stateside and and, and internationally. And so as you get to travel, what do you see that, that excites you about things that are happening in education? Because I also think it's really easy to kind of always focus on, on what's missing or what's lacking or what needs to change. Um, and so you also have that global perspective. So if you get to do that, what do you go around going, wow, we're, we're, we're definitely moving in the right direction in some of these things. Nothing's ever perfect, we know, but um, what, do, what are you seeing around um, that you're like, all right, all right, this, this gets Scott McLeod excited about, about staying in education and doing the work that, that, that we're all trying to do?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I think a couple of things. One is just the kind of conversations that many schools are having today compared to where we were five, 10 years ago. I'm seeing some pretty significant shifts in that. So, you know, 10 years ago, if I came and talk to you in your school building or your district or your community about deeper learning and student agency and authentic work and tech integration. And you'd be like, yeah, yeah, okay, whatever. We've got accountability mandates to satisfy and more kids to get above the bubble line on state tests and whatever. Right. And I think there's more people that are open to have that conversation and are trying to have that conversation locally than there were um, just a few years back. So that's a very, um, Heartwarming, you know, sign for me is the fact that more and more people are willing to talk and think and discuss and play. They may not know what they want to do or how they want to go there, but at least they're starting to be more receptive to the idea, understanding that the world actually is changing, we better change too, and so on. So that's a real huge positive. Right? And then for me, it's really interesting to just see all all of the sort of locally contextual experiments that are playing out everywhere. Mm. So some places are making really small changes, right? Like let's do um, a couple days of uh, a makerspace pop-up day just to see what that does for elementary school, or let's do a two-week PBL project and just see how it goes, right? And, you know, like small experiments, right? But then way on the other end, we've got schools who are just blowing it out and like letting kids drive their own learning all the day every day, right? way over on the other end of the continuum. And so I think the schools that get me most excited are the ones that are really figuring out ways to empower kids to own their own learning um, as much as possible. So that doesn't mean all the time and it doesn't mean it's you know all anarchy and chaos and we don't have anything to guide or shape or teach kids. But the more that we can get kids to own their learning, the more it becomes about them and not us. And so there are absolutely ways that we can fold in essential curricular outcomes and goals and state and federal mandates and all of that into these kinds of student-driven spaces. And when I see schools that are starting to figure out how to do that, it's really cool, right? Because kids come to school and kids leave school excited and engaged and enthusiastic and they can't wait to tell their parents what they did. Uh, And, you know, and that's a very different model from sort of our sit and listen to us passively and answer review questions at the back of the chapter. And when you get home and you're, Parents asked you what you did in school. You said nothing because really you did nothing, right? Very right? <laughs> right. <So, really laughs> different model. So anything anything that sort of gets kids engaged and doing meaningful work, I'm all over
0: Yeah, I love that. And So as you were talking, it it just reminded me, I've I've had this kind of like three-week conversation in in a Voxer chat with several educators around um, a topic that um, you just kind of referenced. So you talked about you've seen school with these small little changes trying to make it work and these other schools that have been trying to just blow the system up and start from scratch. And So the big conversation debate that we've been having on this Voxer chat is, um, is it possible to truly transform a culture of a school? in the existing traditional system, or to get to this this mode of learning that we, that everybody's striving for, do you actually have to start from scratch? And so I guess my, my question to you is, wh- where do you fall on that continuum? Because the, the conversation is as follows. Some say all these little small steps and baby steps, in the end, it's not going to get us where we have. We've been doing that for years. The only way to transform education is to no longer reform and just start from scratch, build a culture literally from ground zero and, and take it that way because you that way you can bring the people and the community resources that you need. So um, as you kind of dabble and you get to see it all, where where are you at and um, in, in, in that kind of conversation?
1: So I actually think the question is moot because okay. uh, you know, as wonderful as it is to start your school from scratch right? I mean, obviously that short circuits the whole change process. You just design from the beginning for whatever the new paradigm you think is, and you just build around that. But the bottom line is, you know, the vast majority of communities and schools and educators aren't going to ever have an opportunity to do that. Right. So, you know, talking about how the 96% of schools should blow themselves up, you know, like the other 4% of schools have had the opportunity to do, I think is just not a feasible question. I think, you know, the, the different question is, you know, how do we create change structures within existing mechanisms in most schools that serve most kids in most communities, right? And that ha- inevitably has to be a gradual process. Now, there are all kinds of things we can do to accelerate the pace of change. And I think one of the reasons that you are here, so many people say they just want to blow it all up is that they're frustrated with the pace of change and they're frustrated with how slow it is and how long it takes to make meaningful shifts happen. And I think part of that goes back to our earlier conversation around this fact that unless we have strong visions about what we want new learning and teaching paradigms to be, and unless we create a variety of robust Um, implementation and support structures and learning structures to make those happen right it's going to take a really long time and we're just going to be dabbling and we'll have lots and lots of failures which we're going to have anyway right but instead of learning from those failures and continuing to grow what we're going to have instead is we're going to have fadism where oh well that didn't work out let's go try something else and we're so apt to do that in education right we try things so where's this community sort of like long-term sustained vision and plan for, say, in the next 10 to 15 years, we're going to go from point A to point B, right? And these are the implicit long-term scaffolds and structures and supports we're going to put into place that gets us from point A to point B over the course of 15 years. And we absolutely could transform any school or any district in the country in 10 to 15 years with that kind of plan, right, if we stuck to it, right, and we're thoughtful about it. Just most places don't.
0: Right, right. No, I love that. I love that. And so, to kind of maybe wrap up this, this thought process here. So, a, a teacher's listening in, and they see they want to accelerate the pace of change. They they are in their their PLCs or their meetings, and and they want to keep moving. And but like the system as a whole isn't there. What advice would you give to like that group of teachers or or that teacher? Because I mean, every building size is different. To help them try to build those connections or bridges to try to get it where it does become a school or district or community-wide um, platform of, of trying to look at, you know, trying to create that 10 to 15-year vision. Because I think you have these different pockets. Some schools have amazing leaders. Just like you said, if, if you're this, this kind of a, this educator that's pushing the boundary, but you're stuck, it just becomes a pocket, right? It's just a little pocket of greatness that doesn't, it's just a little tiny blip on, on the radar. Um, and so that reality is you just can't always just move schools. You just can't just get up and leave and move your family. It's just not, not the reality for so many people. So what would you say or encourage or them to kind of you know expand their reach a little bit so to try to get that change moving faster?
1: Yeah, so I'd say uh, a few things here. So one is absolutely find your allies, right? Local, global, wherever they might be, Uh, Find those people who care about transforming learning and teaching like you do and start sharing information and resources and strategies and so on. So that's that's one. Right. I mean, we're stronger together than we ever are in isolation. The second thing would be is to start modeling the kind of learning and teaching that you want to see. So sure, maybe you're embedded in a system that doesn't reward much of this. But if you're serious about this. Right. Walk the walk. Don't just talk the talk. Um, and then, again, try to sort of slowly infect the people around you, right, with help from your allies, start getting more people on board with those visions and those implementation structures. Uh, the third thing would be to, is to start uh, trying to insert some interesting questions into conversations with peers and uh, supervisors. So an interesting question might be something like, how does this stack of worksheets that we have from the publisher in Unit 3 um, in my class uh, help prepare – Uh, a student to be successful in a global innovation society, right? (laughs) Like that would be an interesting question. Another (laughs) question would be something like, how do we, how can we as a staff prepare students to be successful in technology suffused workplace environments and learning environments if we're not very tech savvy ourselves, right? Like these are sort of examples of interesting questions that allow us to, Um, really start opening some conversations that are non-threatening, hopefully, but allow us to broker some um, openings um, and conversation that we really need to have. And then I would say maybe a fourth thing is, as you are in these communities of practice that are hopefully feeding you some very forward-thinking ideas, is – start putting those in front of the people that you work with and work for and start mobilizing some permission to at least try some things in small-scale pilots in ways that aren't threatening to other people around you, but also allows you to try some ideas out and just see what possibility they might have. So there's four strategies for you.
0: No, that's awesome. And I love it. I think those are all practical things. And I think in the end, it's if you are serious about the philosophies and ideas that you have, just like you said, you've got to walk the walk. And I think so many times we have not just education, just in, in general, we like to proclaim what we are doing, but are we actually doing it? You know, that, that kind of good old lip service. And so there's that challenge. Just as you said, those are some some great small practical tips that can create some, some really powerful conversation moving forward to make these things happen um, if you're really serious about those change. Um, Scott, I want to be, be respectful of your time because I know you've got a crazy schedule. And so as, as we kind of bring this to a close here, are there any other ideas or thoughts that you want to bring to the table that we didn't get a chance to bring up through through, through the questions or the conversation that you want to leave the, the uh, listeners with?
1: Yeah, I think we have to be brave, right? I think, you know, we, we always hear from – teachers and principals in particular, that somebody or something is keeping them from doing what they know is right, right? And I think there's a moral component to education that at some point requires us to stand up and be brave and advocate for what we know is right and best for kids. And so as we have conversations about what do learning, teaching, and schooling need to look like, we have to be able to look within And realize that we're not just compliant cogs in the machine right that that we we are skilled talented professionals who care deeply about children and their futures and if we're serious about that right we're gonna have to step up and uh, speak up um, on behalf of some of these issues uh, rather than just being silent or defeated all the time. And that's going to require some personal bravery, right? And that's where our allies come into place because, again, there's strength in numbers, right? There's the collective quest for something better for our children um, as opposed to us tilting at windmills alone. But but we have to sort of muster up that internal courage um, to do some things differently. And, you know, I'm – I'm a f- it's challenging to hear over and over again, well, we can't do that because, right? And I'm, you know, you know, I constantly just think in my head, well, that's interesting because so-and-so over here is doing exactly that, right? Even though he or she is in the same setting and context and policy environment, whatever that you are, uh, he or she has just decided to make a different choice than you are, right? And so what could we do that help you be brave enough to make some different choices?
0: Yeah. I love that. I love that. I think that's a wonderful idea as we as we bring this to a close is to be brave. And I think, you know, just kind of connecting all the dots there. If you don't think you can do it and you find yourself with that kind of mindset, like I want to do this, but dot, dot, dot. You know that's where it's important to expand your reach. This is where it's important to get out and, and find those people who are doing it, because you're not alone in these thoughts. And I think you know that you get a chance to travel, but not everybody does. But if you jump on the on the, on the social media, not you have to be on there twenty four seven. Find these people and talk to them and ask them questions, and they can help guide you in terms of how did they do it. People are willing to share educators are are willing to share their insights and and build those colleagues and those communities up. And so I think that's really important if you find yourself in that mental barrier of building those excuses. One way to do that is, like you said, build those allies. And that requires you going out and finding those people um, because they're all over. They are. They they do exist. And you just got to find them and you got to just build your strength in numbers. And so as we wrap this up to a close, Scott, I can't thank you enough uh, for your time. I can't thank you enough for uh, carving out, out, out some time this morning to chat with me. Uh, we'll put all the links in the show notes. But those listening in, if they want to reach out to you and kind of follow your work, you have an amazing blog that it always is a, a, a thought provoker. Um, I always look forward to when it comes across my feed. Um, where can people reach out and uh, find you? Uh,
1: so my blog is dangerouslyirrelevant.org. Uh, And then you can find me at Twitter, at McLeod, M-C-L-E-O-D. And those are probably the two best places to find me. Thanks, Aaron.
0: Awesome. Thank you so much, Scott, for your time.
1: Yeah, great to talk with you.